Women's roles, women's rights, and women's identities in our culture are constantly shifting. This is Unsettled Womanhood, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about different aspects of womanhood and what it means to be a woman today. I'm Charity Nebbe. On this episode, I'll talk with three generations of women from the same family about how our changing culture influence their lives, opportunities, and choices. But first, Feminism 101. The dictionary definition of feminism is the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes. That doesn't sound too controversial, but we all know the story is a lot more complicated than that. We asked Iowans around the state to tell us if they identify as feminists and why, or why not. I identify as a feminist because I believe in equity and inclusion for all genders, and I would like to be a role model for my son, who is four. Um, I'm going to let you take that one here. (laughs) I would say yes. I would say yes. Yes. I do not identify as a feminist. I guess I'm just not very... I don't look into it much. I mean, I don't really know exactly what it means to be a feminist. I believe that women, you know, should we should be confident and we should be empowered. I don't know if I like the word feminist, but uh, yeah. I believe that women can do anything that men can. So if that makes me a feminist, then I guess I am. I would agree. I would agree 100% with that. I think for me, it's the connotations of uh, um, from the maybe 60s and 70s that if someone was a feminist, they were anti-establishment, and you know, they were just the stigma from from that era. I'm a transgender non-binary person who was born femme-bodied, so I am a feminist because I believe in all genders being equal, even the ones we didn't know about growing up. If I'm being completely honest, I don't like think about it that often, Um, but yeah, I'd say so. I remember I had like a bad bias in high school because I was like, well, yeah, like I support equality, but I had that mindset like, well, I don't know if I consider myself a feminist because there was such that negative connotation like in our community about like what a feminist meant. Yeah, my parents have always been feminists. They've always talked about like pay gaps and everything. And yes, I am a feminist and I believe in empowering women. I spent most of my career in broadcasting Um, sometimes uh, struggling to prove myself but since then I find great joy and uh, satisfaction in helping other women achieve their goals in life. I guess I've never really thought about feminism because I just carry on. I think that I'm more of a feminist. I don't believe in um and, uh, you know, there are specific roles in society that only males can do versus females. I think everyone should be able to have that autonomy to decide what they want to do. Um, I feel like I would consider myself a feminist. Um, I feel like a lot of feminism nowadays is really radical, but um, I also did grow up under Islam. So I do see a different perspective where... Um, women were basically forced to cover up we weren't like worth as much as men so I just feel like you know living my best life and just really embracing who I am as a woman sure why not why wouldn't I Voices of Iowans from Sioux City, Des Moines, and Iowa City. Thank you to IPR reporters Sheila Brummer and Natalie Krebs and producers Caitlin Troutman and Maddie Willis for putting that together. 
Now, the history of feminism is long in this country, and many people believe it can be divided into four distinct waves. We have asked Karen Kodrowski, political science professor and chair of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University, to help us chart a course through the waves. Karen, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. And we're asking you to condense probably a semester-long course into about a half an hour. So <laughs> we will we'll dive right in. I mean, tell me about that first wave of feminism, which, of course, wasn't called the first wave when it started. Yeah, absolutely. So the first wave of feminism is really synonymous with the women's suffrage movement, uh, which is, of course, the effort to get women the right to vote, um, either through state action and eventually successfully through federal action. So we uh, traditionally date that from 1848 with the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention that was called by Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, and its primary document, um, its statement of the movement's goals is called the Declaration of Sentiments, which is cribbed largely from the Declaration of Independence and included um, a number of legal reforms that they wanted to see occur, um, including women being able to control their own property, uh, that women would be able to have custody of their children in divorce proceedings, that women could inherit their property and have control over their own wages. Um, most controversial was, of course, the call for women's suffrage. And it only took another 72 years uh, for that to be successful. And, and of course, a lot of that struggle was the fact that men held all the power. So the women who were fighting for the right to vote and these other rights had to convince men to give it to them. Yeah, they, they had to convince men to give up their power. Um, and as you can imagine, that was um, uh, not an easy case to make. And it was very controversial. Uh, the, the public sphere, which included, you know, business and, you know, the, the church, uh, public speaking, and of course, politics was considered to be the world of men. And it was corrupt, right? That women's um, virtue and women's contributions to society were to be the moral force within the home. And if the belief was amongst many that if women entered the world of politics, they would be corrupted because politics was corrupt and corruptible, right? And uh, that women would lose this moral authority. Um, now, on the other side, suffragists also agreed that women were morally superior. And they argued that women needed to be able to vote so that they could impose a number of reforms upon society, um, including cleaning up politics, immigration reform, and of course, prohibition. So, <laughs> and any movement that lasts 72 years is bound to have a, a lot of different things happening within it over that time. When that first wave began, it started with abolitionists, people who wanted to do away with slavery. But it morphed over time. And many people, um, I guess, it, I, not just many people, it's pretty clear that black women were left behind in this movement. Um, yes and no. Right. Um, clearly a movement that spans, you know, nearly eight decades and includes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, that you're going to find a lot of diversity of opinion. NASA, which is the National American Women's Suffrage Association, the largest suffrage organization 
in the country at the time of ratification and its predecessors uh, were integrated. Uh, but that doesn't mean that all uh, suffragists were comfortable with this. And a lot of Southern suffragists who very desperately wanted the right to vote for white women opposed a federal amendment because the federal amendment was not exclusive to white women. And uh, Carrie Chapman Catt uh, refused to compromise on that, um, even though, frankly, the amendment probably would have passed sooner had she um, allowed that restriction to white women. So we do know that African-American women who lived outside the Deep South either had um, constitutional protection for state-granted suffrage rights or were granted suffrage for the first time. We also know that there are women in certain pockets of the Deep South who successfully registered to vote and voted in the 1920 election. Um, and, you know, other women really sought to continue to work to help African-Americans pass the literacy tests and so forth uh, so that both African-American men and women could, um, could exercise their right of franchise even before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Right, and you just mentioned the Voting Rights Act. So that struggle continued for a long time after the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. Let's move ahead to the second wave of feminism. Uh, when did that right. begin? Well, we really date that from uh, the publication of The Feminist Mystique in 1963. Now, that isn't to say that there wasn't feminist activity between 1920 and 1963. There certainly was, but it wasn't really a mass-based social movement. It was really sort of a function of elites uh, who were working kind of behind the scenes um, to get various policies enacted. The um, the feminine mystique, which was published by Betty Friedan, uh, popularized the the phrase "the problem that has no name," and uh, she started on this project where she was actually interviewing her college classmates uh, to find out what they had done in the world, how they had transformed the world, and found out that instead they were mostly um, stay-at-home moms with children, uh, living the life that society told them should make them fulfilled and happy, and that they were profoundly unhappy and could not identify exactly why. Um, and Friedan really kind of concluded that it was because of their suppressed ambitions, right? That these were women who are well-educated, they were talented, they had a lot to contribute in the workplace, and they were stymied and stifled by their lives as housewives. And this struck a chord with a lot of women who then became activists in the second wave. Um, and we we see that these activists really sort of pushed on... Um, sort of multiple fronts to eliminate legal barriers to women's full participation in society and in the workplace and in education and um, and those and, and met with a fair amount of success. We're going to have to take a short break here, and then we will talk about what the second wave accomplished in just a moment. We're talking about the history of feminism in the United States. My guest is Karen Kadrowski. She is a political science professor and chair of the Carrie Chapman Catt Center for Women and Politics at Iowa State University. More in a moment. Or kiss the meaning.
is Unsettled from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On the show today, we are getting a history of feminism in the United States. With me to walk us through this history is Karen Kadrowski, political science professor and chair of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women and Politics at Iowa State University. And Karen, just before the break, we started talking about the second wave of feminism, which started in the early 1960s and really became a very powerful movement. So tell me more about what women were demanding. Right. So women wanted to eliminate legally sanctioned discrimination on the basis of sex. So they passed legislation to that effect that includes, for example, the Equal Pay Act. It includes Title IX. Uh, It includes a Fair Credit Act so that women could get credit in their own names. And it also included a number of court cases, usually led by Ruth Bader Ginsburg of uh, the ACLU at the time, which, you know, focused on identifying that uh, sex discrimination was, in fact, prohibited under the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses, and to make sure that the court definitively stated that the 14th Amendment applied to women. I I just want to underline how dramatic these changes were and how recent it was that a woman couldn't have a credit card and couldn't get a mortgage. And I mean, all of all of these things are a little bit mind blowing to think about the fact that it was only about 50 years ago. Yeah, it's it's really very recent that these were open questions and a considerable amount of debate about whether or not women could be trusted with money, whether or not women would simply leave the workforce so that made them a bad credit risk, you know, once they got married or had children, or that women didn't have the intellectual capacity to be able to lead in the workforce or to handle advanced education. And then that morphed into, well, if women take these positions that takes something away from men, right? Which is still kind of a backlash that you will continue to hear. And let's talk about the backlash because this wasn't this wasn't all women and it wasn't it certainly wasn't without controversy. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that the, the leader of the sort of anti-feminist movement, which was really focused on kind of the third strategy, which was to amend the Constitution to add the Equal Rights Amendment to it, was Phyllis Schlafly. And her first group, which was known as Stop ERA, known as Stop Taking Our Privileges, and later morphed into the Eagle Forum, which continues to exist today. And she was really very, very talented at sort of articulating the threat that traditional housewives felt by the feminist movement. First of all, they thought that their life choices were condemned or trivialized and their contributions were not being recognized by feminists. Second, they really worried that if all these reforms went through, that the the understanding that they had when they might have married very young, dropped out of high school, never attended college, never held a job, but sought to get married with the understanding that their husbands would always provide for them and their children, that that social contract would be undermined. I grew up in the the late 70s and early 80s. And even as a child, I remember feminism just being, for so many people, a really bad word. I mean, this was this was a really fraught time in many ways. Absolutely. Well, and because, you know, the the feminist movement was not monolithic. So you had your sort of mainstream liberal small L feminists um, who who really sought to eliminate legal barriers between 
uh, men and women and women's potential achievement. But you had also radical feminists who, you know, were avowed communists who espoused uh, lesbianism, uh, who who talked about marriage as a trap, who, um, you know, espoused witchcraft to get away from patriarchal uh, Judeo-Christian traditions. And of course, this all then became a caricature. But, you know, for the opponents, it provided ample ammunition to attack feminism in general and to paint these women as radical and crazy and well outside the mainstream and bent on destroying the home and family. I I think anybody who knows anything about history can see how powerful this movement in the 60s and 70s was and how it really transformed our lives. And, you know, I'm a I'm a Gen Xer. I am so incredibly grateful for all of the opportunities that I had that I wouldn't have had a generation earlier. But um, again, this is a wave of feminism where a lot of look, people look at it and say that a lot of women in lower socioeconomic levels, a lot of women of color were left behind. I mean, it turns out that a lot of upper middle class women fighting for their right to be in the workplace were not representing the women who were already in the workplace because they had to work. Yes, exactly. And especially with the debate over the Equal Rights Amendment, a lot of working class women simply thought that, you know, this does not speak to me at all. (laughs) This does not talk about, you know, my experiences. I want to have an extra break that my male colleagues don't get because I'm working hard and I'm tired, right? And so, especially for the Equal Rights Amendment, then feminists also adopted this notion that it would eliminate the gender pay gap, which is a very iffy proposition, frankly. Um, It might eliminate some of the gender pay gap, but the gender pay gap is, of course, much more complicated than that. And then there were also, you know, just, I think, very legitimate criticisms that white middle class women had a particular set of concerns and that they were um, not necessarily open to or sensitive to how their uh, their experiences were not representative of women as a whole. Before we move on to third wave feminism, uh, let's talk specifically about Iowa and some of the, the reforms that were made in Iowa. What did it look like? So Iowa was the fourth state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in 1972, and it passed overwhelmingly through the Iowa state legislature. And then Iowa really embarked on a a couple decades long debate about whether or not to add the Equal Rights Amendment to the state constitution. And in fact, there were attempts to do so by referenda in 1980 and 1992 before it was eventually successful in 1998. We also saw some other pretty interesting changes that were going on within the state legislature. So for example, um, it was uh, through women in the Iowa state legislature that whenever a new board or commission was added at the state level, that they um, supported what was called the usual and customary uh, amendment, which was to stipulate that the board had to be gender balanced. In, In 1987, the legislature extended this to make sure that all state-level boards and commissions were gender balanced. And in 2009, they passed a similar law that um, applied to local boards and commissions, which went into effect just as recently as 2013. And so Iowa is really a unique state in that it is the only one that requires that its state and local boards and commissions 
be gender balanced in their composition. And of course, there is controversy about that um, law going on and a debate going on even today. Right. To to do away with the law. From your perspective, Karen, how has that law affected us? It's worked. <laughs> um, uh, for the, the scholars that have looked at state-level boards and commissions, um, there are about a dozen other states, give or take one or two, that have recommendations that their state boards and commissions be gender-balanced, but not a requirement. So Iowa is far ahead of the curve and has far more balanced boards and commissions And those that have a recommendation do better than the states that don't have any language at all. And from our own studies at the CAT Center, looking at the implementation of the gender balance at the local level, what we have found is that the total number or percentage of women that are serving on local boards and commissions has stayed about the same, but they're better distributed. So we've seen an increase Um, a market increase in women as chairs and vice chairs of boards and commissions, and also the percentage of boards and commissions that are gender balanced. Let's move on to the third wave. And there is some debate about whether there's a third and a fourth wave or just a third wave, but but let's assume there's a fourth (laughs) wave here for our purposes. Tell me about the third wave. So the third wave is generally agreed upon as starting um, after the ERA failed in 1982. And at that point, uh, feminist advocates began to turn their attention to state and local initiatives. So, for example, we see that there is a concerted effort to make sure that all states have reformed their divorce laws and their laws on, on rape. Um, to expand it to sexual assault of a variety of different types, to include stalking um, and other kinds of, you know, sex-based crimes, um, efforts to make sure that these are um, adjudicated by the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that ex- that is charged with sort of policing against discrimination and bringing up civil cases in cases of violation. Um, There's also lengthy uh, fights about Title IX (laughs) and what that should look like in colleges and universities, especially, um, and making sure that institutions are in compliance as much as they can. And then we also see at the federal level the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, which led to the creation and funding of domestic violence shelters all over the country, and the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is sort of the first step towards some sort of parental or um, maternity leave in the United States. Another change that we saw, and not perfectly, and again, this movement is not monolithic, um, is more intersectionality, a recognition of women and men that that people have different identities and, and different needs. Yes, absolutely. So this is really a a debate that started in the academy, but has, I think, spread into the activists of the feminist movement as well. And it is this notion that people are not just one thing and that you can't like pull out, I'm going to pull out my identity as a female as different than my identity as being a first-generation college student, for example. Um, And that was really put forth by women of color, saying, you know, you ask us to think about ourselves as women, but we can't think about ourselves as anything other than black women, right? Uh, We are not just one thing. We We have a combination of experiences that are unique because of our race, our ethnicity, 
our immigrant status, our social class, uh, our education level, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really began to communicate, um, and I think very powerfully, that women are, of course, a very diverse group and that what is true for one group of women um, is not true for all. Let's talk about fourth wave feminism. If there is indeed a fourth wave, how do we yes, define if it? If there is a fourth wave, <laughs> um, we would see that as starting plus or minus around uh, 2012, at least in the United States. There's some debate about when it might have started in other countries. But this is sometimes called hashtag feminism, right? Where especially through social media, um, younger women, our, our Gen Zs, <laughs> um, are, are discovering sort of a common set of experiences and uh, sharing their views of uh, and their experiences with discrimination, then you'll see them sort of organizing around common, you know, common issues. Uh, one of them is especially, of course, sexual harassment and sexual assault. And the hashtag Me, Me Too movement really took off after the New York Times exposés about Harvey Weinstein, which then led to a number of exposés about Bill Cosby and Matt Lahr and other very prominent men who were found to um, really have broken the law in the workplace in their treatment of women. And then it became clear just how absolutely ubiquitous and what a serious social problem this was. Uh, we also saw, for example, the same thing going on in terms of college women sharing their experiences with sexual assault and harassment, which really called a, you know called attention to this problem among administrators in the U.S. Department of Education. Um, another example of how this movement was able to sort of gel and spread very quickly was the Women's March in January of 2017, uh, which came together really in, in a space of weeks <laughs> um, because the you know organi organizers of the the march were dismayed with um, President Trump's election and wanted to express that. And literally in a very short period of time, we're able to pull together really a global set of marches. But the one in Washington, D.C. was the largest assembly of persons that had ever occurred in Washington, D.C., and there were zero arrests. We've also seen a focus on black women with the Say Her Name campaign, yes. um, paying attention to, to black women and, and many of their vulnerabilities and the things that have, have happened and continue to happen. We've also seen the missing and murdered indigenous women movement grow as well. And a big part of this fourth wave are trans rights. Exactly. Yes. So again, um, by using this sort of hashtag feminism, as it were, uh, people are able to, you know, sort of find commonality and demonstrate very quickly the absolutely, um, you know, horrific extent of some of these things. And of course, trans women identify as women and they face particular vulnerabilities um, within the healthcare system, they are particularly likely to face sexual assault um, and other types of, you know, physical assault that can get beaten up and so forth. And then, of course, the ongoing debate about participation on women's sports teams, um, access to healthcare, hormonal treatment, and so forth. So that, too, has sort of come out, and the trans women have been educating feminists across the board about these issues and sort of, you know, working to make sure that they are included in the discussion about women's rights generally.
There have been criticisms of this fourth wave of feminism as, as being hashtag feminism or hashtag activism. There, of course, there are always criticisms. There's always controversy. <laughs> there, there, this, there's no monolithic group involved here. But I am curious, from your perspective, Karen, do you feel like the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court, which overturned Roe versus Wade, and now we have seen abortion access restricted in much of the country. Do you feel like that's a galvanizing moment for this fourth wave? Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, And we have seen, you know, the sort of social media activism tools, which, by the way, work. (laughs) It's a very great way to reach a lot of people of a certain age group in a very short period of time and stimulate them to take action. Um, And that as they have been concerned with this, we've seen that they have mobilized very effectively wherever abortion rights have been on the ballot to, you know, secure these rights. But I think it has also shown to many people what they perceive as the need for the Equal Rights Amendment, right? So one of the arguments against the Equal Rights Amendment was, well, we have all these laws and we've won all these court cases. We really don't need an amendment, right? But a right that is granted through legislation or a right that is granted through a court case can be overturned by another court case or another piece of legislation. Whereas if there is a constitutional protection, that that offers another safeguard um, against the deter- what some people would see as the deterioration of rights. Karen Kodrowski, political science professor and chair of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center at Iowa State University, teaching us about feminism today. Next up, I'll talk with three generations of women from the same family about how our changing culture influenced their lives, opportunities, and choices. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Unsettled from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. So far on this episode, we've been talking about the history of feminist movements that radically changed life in this country. Mothers who came of age in the 1960s and 70s had very different experiences and options than their daughters did a couple of decades later. And young people today are coming of age in a world that feels very different from the 80s or 90s. We have invited three generations of women from the same Des Moines family to share their experiences with us today. We are going to start with the matriarch of the family, Barbara Grant. She was born in 1955. Hello, Barbara. Hello. It is wonderful to talk with you. And tell me just a little bit uh, about your life and your background. I know you you mostly grew up here in Iowa. Yes, I uh, grew up in Iowa. I, I left Iowa when I was 23 and I moved to Colorado. And I came back home 18 years ago because my daughter was here. I retired here. And so I'm just enjoying my family and doing the things that I want to do right now. 
So I'm thinking about when you were turning 18 years old, Barbara, that was 1972 or so. That was kind of the, the height of the women's movement. Were you aware of all of that? Well, at that time, there was a lot of things going on. And one of those was I was a teenage mother at 16. So my focus was going to school, uh, being a young uh, teenage mother. And at that time, there was a lot of other issues going on. There was the Black Panther movement. There was the civil rights. There there was quite a few other issues going on. So I think uh, being a woman of color and being a young teenage mother at that time, I was aware of it. But like I said, I had so many other irons in the fire that I was dealing with personally. Yeah. And you went to school for respiratory therapy. You had a career in in that. Tell me a little bit about the work that you did. I was actually a therapist. I gave treatments to people who had emphysema, COPD, asthma, worked with ventilators that do the mechanical breathing that we still have. And during the time I was a, or I did it for like 10 years, AIDS came about just like AIDS, AIDS was the new, the HIV was the new, uh, I, I say plague or pandemic at that yeah. time. So it was like strict isolation, same thing like with COVID and they didn't know where it was coming from. So I went through that. Wow. I did it for 10 years. And then when I moved to Colorado, I also continued there. But what happened was a couple of the nurses that I worked with at the hospital, uh, Rocky Mountain Hospital was the name of that one, decided that we were going to drive city buses because they paid more. So wait a minute, Barbara. Driving the city bus paid better than being a respiratory therapist? Yes. See, at that time, unions were very, very active and very big. And at that time, they were they were a very strong union. And the top drivers made like 60 grand back then. And as a, as a therapist, I think we made like 25, 26, nothing compared to that. So when you started driving the city bus, that was a traditional male role. Did you run into any uh, any discrimination there? Yes, it was. It was. Um, uh, some of the men were very resentful because... We were the women coming in, and the um, thing was, this was a man's job. One of the issues was they had non-power steering buses at that time, which was very hard to turn. Yeah. But what happened was, uh, since you were so everything was by seniority, and since we were so low on seniority, we would get the routes with the non-power steering buses and the long hours that type. But some of the guys had pity on us and taught us how to drive them. And one of the things you had to do is when you turned the bus, you had to actually stand up to turn it so it wouldn't pull your back out. Dang. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, so, you know, yes, that was quite a, a challenge, you know, uh, but we made, I made money, you know, and uh, I was able to take care of my daughter and, and do the things that I needed to do as a parent. But I think I lasted there six years and then I moved on to something else. So, Well, you mentioned you were bringing up this little girl all this time. That little girl is sitting next to you, Loretta. Hello, Loretta. Well, hello. 
Loretta Windsor was born in 1971. She is the founder of the Sista Soul Fest in Des Moines. So, Loretta, I, I mentioned you were born in 1971, which now obviously your mom was a teen mom, but it, it was a really different time when you came of age 18 years later. Tell me a little bit about that time for you. Okay, well, yeah, it was definitely a little different from, from hers, um, but it still was kind of the same. And we're still fighting it now as far as uh, the wealth gap between women and men and especially uh, women of color. Uh, so we still face that quite a bit. But coming up, in, you know, I started working young at 16. My first job was at McDonald's, uh, mastered that, <laughs> mastered the drive through nice. uh, started in Colorado. Um, as my mother has stated, we left to Colorado, uh, to move to Colorado when I was, what, maybe eight, nine years old. And then I'd come back for the summers here uh, until I was about 16. Nice. So, so when you were, I mean, once once you spent some time at McDonald's and you were starting to think about your future, what what kinds of options felt open to you? At that time, everything I felt was available to me if I wanted it. I didn't really see the restrictions that my mom and the ladies before me had seen. Uh, at that time, I was really in, uh, engaged in the ROTC. And so the Army was something I was really heavy looking at. I did four years in high school of ROTC. I had my own company, Company E. And uh, my senior year, and I actually was on my way to the Army. But that year that I graduated in 89, uh, it was President Reagan and Gaddafi at the time. Right, Libya, yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go to the Army. I don't want to go to war. Yeah, so the Army was one, uh, my major thing. And then I also uh, just always felt like there was something I needed to do with people. So uh, I did eventually go into the medical field. I went in as a med- I went to school for a medical assistant. Got my uh, certificate in that, and I worked as a medical assistant in here in Iowa and in Colorado for several, well, for about seven, eight years. And you are a mother of two. Yes. Let's bring your daughter into the conversation as well. So we've got Barbara, we've got Loretta, and now Victoria Lewis is here. She was born in 1999. She's a college student majoring in communications at DMAC. Hello, Victoria. Hello, hello. How are you? Wonderful. It's so great to have all three of you here today. Victoria, you are in school now. You're 23 years old. Let's talk a little bit about... Your coming of age moment, when you turned 18, what kind of possibilities did you see for you? I definitely saw college. I think I've always considered college and higher education to be along my path. Um, I'm going to be the first college graduate in my uh, family, which is a very, very big deal. But yeah, I've always seen education and pursuing a degree in journalism and communications. That's always been a passion of mine. So being a first-generation college student can be incredibly challenging. Has Have you encountered challenges you feel because of that? Oh, definitely. There have been times where I would put heavy pressure on myself. Uh, my family has always been very, very supportive, whether I wanted to pursue higher education or not. Uh, but yes, I've definitely 
uh, faced many, I don't want to say challenges, but I've, I've faced a lot of great lessons uh, while being a first-generation student. And I'm very proud of my progress. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I want to ask you, because there there's a big difference between really the, the rights and the choices, the opportunities that were available to women for you, Barbara, and for you, Loretta. There's not as big a difference between the the rights and the opportunities, Victoria, that, that you have come of age with. But gosh, the world feels really different now than it did 20 years ago. Do you ever feel a, a generation gap with your mom or, or with your grandma? I don't think so. I definitely realize and acknowledge how times have shifted. Um, but they're honestly my best friends and we talk about so many, so many different things and the experiences that they have faced as women and continue to go through as women. I do acknowledge that, you know, times, times have definitely changed, but I feel so close to them. I don't really see too much of a gap if there is one. Can you think of something that you've learned from your mom or your grandma about, about just being a woman in the world, an example? Oh, um, I think the the big thing is that they've taught me that I teach people how to treat me. Um, being a person, as a woman, as a black woman, ha- be, having respect given to me is my right. They've taught me to remain strong. They taught me that first impressions, no matter who it is, is very important. They've also taught me honestly, how to extend grace and to exude elegance, no matter how many people expect me not to be. Mm. I think those are the biggest keys that I will always carry with me and that I, I plan on extending to my daughter if I ever have one. Barbara, I mean, listening to Victoria say that, that must make both you and Loretta feel proud. But what goes through your mind when you listen to her? I am very proud of uh, Victoria and Loretta. I reflect back to my mother because my mother always talked about her girls and how proud she was of us. And I am very proud, uh, very honored uh, of the women that they have grown to be because they can hold their own. And Victoria Victoria, certainly, her and Loretta, can be very vocal and, and tell you how they feel, what they will do and what they won't do. And they have their own minds. And uh, they are one of the best gifts that I have received in life. And back in time when being a young teenage mother was such a taboo, it has grown, it has, it has shown how beautiful and how wonderful it is. Cause I'm young enough to enjoy all four generations. And plus I enjoyed my mother. So I'm very grateful. I'm very blessed, I must say. Yeah, I wanted to hear more about that, though, because, you know, you're absolutely right that that having a child on your own in 1971, that was a really different situation. It's not easy for teen moms today, but it really wasn't easy for teen moms in 1971. What was that like? Well, the best one of the best things was my mother and my family. My family was so supportive. 
We truly are a very close family, not only with my children, but with my siblings. You know, I have brothers and sisters and I actually have a brother that is actually the same age as my daughter. So she grew up with them. Well, now my my sisters call her uh, a sister niece because she she is with us with many decisions that we make as far as like when my mother got sick. But I had so many friends. I have friends that have had children at the same time. And at that time, you were put out of the public school. You had to go to a school called Booth. It was in Indianola. It was a a school for pregnant teens. And some of the people stayed at that school because their parents sent them there where they would have their babies and they would give their babies up. Oh, wow. Did you feel pressured to to consider that? No, not at all. Because my mother told me, my mother said, you're going to have this child. And then I must say my boyfriend at that time, Loretta's father was very supportive too. He was, he, he was 18. So he was a little older than me, but I had support from his family as well as my family. But no, that, that, that could have been an option, but it wasn't because my mother was like, well, we're not doing that. Thank you, grandma. (laughs) (laughs) So, Loretta, when you were a teenager, do you remember your mom giving you guidance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My mom always said, don't take any wooden nickels. That's what I remember to this day. <laughs> oh, my God, that was drilled in my head. So I I question everything. I, I look at details. Um, I want to know why. And I told my mom a few weeks ago, I said, you know what, mom? I said, I remember growing up, you always said, why did you do that? And if I said, I don't know, she was like, why don't you know? I, how many times I've told you, don't do something that you don't know why you're doing it. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my God, that's why I'm the way I am. So yeah, that, and then also just being true to myself. Loretta, I am curious. You are the founder of Sister Soul Fest, a black woman-led event that creates a space for women, particularly women of color, to really share their talents, their gifts, and businesses. It's a place for women and girls to support each other. Started in 2020. It is the last Sunday in August. So between that work and so many of the things that you've said, it sounds like this sisterhood of women seems to be a really important theme in your life. Oh my God. Yes, it is. It's, it's the core of me. I would say I am a feminist. (laughs) I am all about sisterhood. I mean, all my life I have really had a uh, sisterhood or group um, that we, we would meet every month or every week. So this is, definitely nothing new. It is absolutely my core. Victoria, do you feel like that's something that's important to you as well? Oh, definitely. The only people who can honestly relate to my story personally is women, especially women of color. I think it's very important to have that support system to see ourselves in one another, Um, and not even just women of color, but all women. Um, because we fought in so many different times in space to have equality, to have voting rights, to take away gender roles on occupations and 
and to be seen more than just as child bearers. So I think it's very important for women of all races, backgrounds, sexual orientations, everything to, to feel seen, to feel heard, and to feel supported. Thank you all so much for talking with me today. This has just been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. you. Pleasure. Barbara Grant, Loretta Windsor, and Victoria Lewis, three generations of a Des Moines family. Next time on Unsettled, women's reproductive responsibilities, periods, pregnancy, pap smears, and more. Unsettled is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Samantha McIntosh, and Danny Gear. Our production assistants are Maddie Willis and Kate Perez. And our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. We get digital support from Matt Sierran and Josie Fischels and technical support from the IPR broadcast operations team. I'm Charity Nebbies.